This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. If a kid doesn't know how to read, what do we do? We teach them how to read. If they don't know how to add, what do we do? We teach them how to add. If they don't know how to behave in certain circumstances, that's exactly what we should be doing is teaching them new behaviors. Black kids get punished more often and more severely than white kids, and it doesn't matter what kind of public school they go to. We discuss what teachers can do about that. Plus, President Trump says DACA is dead. Is it really? Those stories plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. And I will say a little bit chilly because we're taping on a day in April when it's actually snowing in Kansas City, and that's not cool. But let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? I teach high school social studies. Jamie Myers, what do you teach? Middle school communication applications. And Bakari Uku'u, you are no longer a teacher, but you are still in education. What do you do? Uh, middle school vice principal. Uh, Bakari, Jamie, and Greg, thank you so much for being here. All of them are educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to our first topic. On the same day that America marked the 50th anniversary of the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the nonpartisan federal watchdog, the Government Accountability Office, released a report about discipline in public schools, and its findings about race in particular are stark. The GAO says regardless of school type and regardless of level of school poverty, black children, boys, and students with disabilities are punished more often and more severely than their white, non-disabled peers. Just to cite one number from this report, black students in the 2013-2014 school year, that's when this data was compiled for this report, black students made up about 15.5% of all school-aged children, but accounted for 39% of student suspensions. The big headline conclusion of this report is that this new data refutes the notion that it is poverty more than race that accounts for racial disparities in discipline because, again, the GAO finds these racial disparities hold consistent across all school types and all income levels. So uh, for my teachers here today, uh, the first question I want to ask is, how should schools and teachers use this data if they want to use it? Uh, what should be the impact on teachers about this report? It should be used as a tool, um, as a starting place for conversations around what does it even look like to develop a discipline system in their school, in your district. Majority of our teachers in America are uh, middle-class white women, and so I would assume that that would significantly impact um, the outcome of these of these of this research. And I think that we have to do a better job about supporting um, all of our teachers and really uncovering their biases and how that plays out in the way that we discipline and approach our classroom. Yeah. If a teacher is often looking for a specific student to act in a specific way, then they are always, always going to be biased against uh, uh, all other types of students. And so I think that's what we see in these type of reports is that students of color, particularly black men and, and women, are the targets of um, of violation. So we assume that they're violating our student codes of conduct and our classroom expectations more often than white students, and that's simply not the case. They're just getting punished more frequently than their white counterparts. Yeah, I mean, to put another statistic on that, based on this GAO report that came out, 
Uh, 15.5% of students are black. 39% of students that are suspended are black. So there's a great discrepancy there. Put another way, there are roughly 17.4 million more white students in America in terms of raw numbers. Yet in terms of students who are suspended, 176,000 more black students. So just in terms of total Mm -hmm. numbers, there are millions more white students in the country, but still black students are getting suspended more, just just the, the raw total. You were starting to talk about it. Is it racism or implicit bias or what you want to, whatever you want to call it, or just a lack of training, or is it both? Well, I would say that implicit bias is a byproduct of racism in, this, in, this, in a country that is built on racist ideologies. And I think that these numbers are very similar uh, to what we see in the society at large, in the criminal justice system, where we see that there's always excuses for white kids and white boys. We don't do a good job in our country of addressing these biases and, and, and stopping them from impacting the futures of others. Yeah, uh, Greg, Jamie, all three of you, did, did you feel like you investigated your, your biases as a teacher in training before you stepped into the classroom? Or has this are these conversations and things you've had to have with yourself and colleagues as you have started your career? So uh, when I started out, I got a job in, in the charter school I am now. And, and it wasn't like planned you know, it, because I'm, I You've grew up in the suburbs. Since, yeah. And I've been there ever since. Yeah. Like deep down inside, I'm really just a white kid from the suburbs, despite the fact that I consider myself Hispanic. My mom's from Mexico. So when I got this job, I, I interviewed there and I felt at home because I thought, wow, this is great. Um, I'll really connect with the students because, because most of them come from Mexico. Um, they're Hispanic. I'm Hispanic. I can speak the language. We, you know, this, this will be really good. I'll be able to, to meet them at their level. And man, my first year was rough. That, that, that first week, I remember just feeling like a culture shock because their, their experiences were so far different from, from mine. And I had to check those. And I had those, those middle-class biases, biases. And it, it took me years to figure out how to kind of get around that. And there was no real training figuring out that that those expectations were actually harming my students and I feel really bad for for me, what can, happened. Can you give me an example or examples of, of what that of what that middle class bias as you termed it how that manifested itself? Sure, in just in just the expectation of what you think a a good student ought to be and what a good student does. The expectation that a good student sits in the classroom quietly and um, asking questions, raising you know, raising their hand, in, in, instead of what I see a lot of is is students just kind of checking out, mainly because they don't have the skills. Yeah, and that, my my experiences are the exact same. I grew up in middle white class. I teach mostly um, lower SES students, and so it's the exact same as far as my expectation of how I learned and how I could just sit in a classroom and and do what the teacher expected me to do is different with the kids that I teach. I guess the the paradigm of respect has changed. There's a shift in how, you know, students can be respectful towards their teachers in classrooms today. Uh, I'm I'm not quite sure how to articulate it, but something about that just definitely rubs me very wrong. I feel like it goes back to these norms that we put in society and say that this is what it's this is what good students look like. And then when we talk about good students, then we look, we have to look at well, what was our educational system actually designed? Who was our educational system designed to teach? And so that's often not children of color. It is not children of color. Period. Not even often. And it's not designed for the success of students of color. It just it doesn't sit well with me if as educators we say that. We are aspiring for our students to all be at this certain level that it's only 
honors that only honors are is only built on the framework of what successful white people do and have done historically. And so I think that until we are willing to be inclusive enough to say that success looks different and that a good student had could be a variety of things, um, even to this notion of respect. And I think that there's this is where this cultural piece comes in because the way that students of color interact with one another or with their um, elders could be completely different than the way that white students interact with their elders. We always look for the, the silent, quiet, um, compliant is what I often hear is, is what I feel like mm-hmm. we're getting at is that we're looking for students to be compliant. And I think that the generation that we're now teaching have been developed and have become accustomed and to some extent entitled to this belief that their opinions matter and that they, they're going to grapple with knowledge in a different way than we ever did before. And I think that's something we should welcome and something that we should adjust our instruction effectively enough to empower them because I don't believe it. My my loud, sometimes obnoxious um, students are wrong for bringing their best selves and their most authentic selves to the table and making it difficult for teachers. I think it's our job as educators to adjust our strategy so that we are effectively leveraging the strengths of our kids to move our society forward. <laughs> Bakari, you're now an administrator. Uh, do you How do you see the, the teachers that you oversee and the teachers you work with? Um, do you see biases coming out? And do you, as a staff, do you talk about it, I wonder? Is this something that is like a an articulable point of conversation? Yes, yes. Um, as a person who often who is the is the one that signs off on those discipline uh, occurrences. I'm always very conscientious uh, around that. And I'm always very conscious of the length of suspensions, the um, the conversations that I'm having with teachers about why this particular student was written up or why this I'm I won't accept this write up or um, this is not going to be qualified as suspension. This is going to be in school suspension. Um, Give me an example of a of a behavior or a write up where. Like the, maybe the teacher wants it to be and and you know a more severe punishment, but you think no, I I actually don't think this this rises to the level of let's say an in school or an out of school suspension, and and you you think maybe the underlying causes there's a there's a cultural clash or a or bias going on. The first thing that came to mind, I don't know if this is if, if the cultural and bias piece, but it speaks more about to the advocacy piece that I often talk about with our students. Teachers trying to get the the class under control. The, uh, get the class's attention. The student continue to make jokes with their friends. The teacher ultimately yells, get out to the, to the student. Um, and I just happened to be walking up on the situation. And this is one of our Latino students. And the teacher was a middle-class white woman. When there's already this um, line of difference, particularly a white teacher and a student of color, when there's that line of difference and then there's this interaction that says, I don't care about you. And when I think at a point where a teacher's yelling, get out, then it becomes, I don't care about you because I've, I've lost all control of you. And because I can't control you, I no longer care. So you have to leave my classroom. And I think that if a student ever feels that way, that it's very difficult for a teacher to um, recoup and, and rebuild that relationship and that rapport with that student. So I was saying that moment, the teacher was upset yelling to get out. Obviously, a kid making jokes and laughing is not an offense that requires them to be physically removed from a classroom. There are several other strategies that could be le- could be leveraged um, to get that student back on task and on track. And so I think in that moment, what we don't think the the implicitness here is that while she's not trying to convey, I don't care about you, that may be a um, unintended outcome 
of that type of right. reaction. Hey, you know, in 2014, the Obama administration released a, it's called a Dear Colleague letter, but there was essentially guidelines aimed at trying to address this racial disparity in discipline and encouraged districts to track the racial breakdowns of their discipline and also kind of warn that if your racial disparities persisted that, you know, the federal government and, and federal education officials or Department of Justice officials would step in and, and kind of look to see if there was undue discrimination going on. Uh, that has currently being reviewed by the Trump administration. They're very much thinking about rolling that guidance back. Um, a lot of the criticism of that, o- that Obama-era guidance was around the idea that it was unduly putting restrictions on teachers, that it was, um, in essence, ultimately making schools less safe because teachers felt less less free to, you know, do the discipline that they were they were trained to do. And uh, there were several examples from schools in Minneapolis where a teacher was was choke slammed by a student or was body slammed by a student or, you know, physically attacked by a student. And the, the reasoning being, well, you know, the teacher, you know, felt like they couldn't, you know, interject their discipline earlier than that. And then it kind of really devolved into a really dangerous situation. Um, those are some extreme examples. But I wonder... Speaking from the vantage of, let's say, a white teacher who mm-hmm. a, a student of color, a black student, is being disruptive, mm-hmm. uh, maybe yelling at them, maybe cursing at them. I think white teachers have articulated the anxiety that they can't, uh, you know, they can't suspend a student or they can't send a student out or they can't uh, uh, discipline a student the way they see fit mm-hmm. uh, for a situation where they might feel um, not only as a kid disruptive, but also might be threatening. Can, can I throw maybe an example out there yeah, yeah, to go yeah. along with that? We've, as a school, we've tried to go more toward like a BIST model and restorative justice mm-hmm. model. The problem teachers are having is they just don't see the consequences. They feel like they can get away with anything. The students just basically, we're supposed to follow like the BIST procedures and, um, and the you know, have restorative. Like the students are and, getting consequences. Right. And, you know? and so then it gets to the point, it's like, well, why should I write the kid up? Because it's not going to do anything. Uh, and that that has happened a couple of times in in our school. I think, yeah. I mean, I, I might not be articulating this well, but I feel like some teachers feel like the you know the Obama guidance and that it it puts the power or puts the ball in the students' court and takes yeah. the power away from teachers. I can definitely understand that sentiment. My pushback there is that if a kid doesn't know how to read, what do we do? We teach them how to read. If they don't know how to add, what do we do? We teach them how to add. Yeah. If they don't know how to behave in certain circumstances, that's exactly what we should be doing is teaching them new behaviors. And I think that what we're not, what we don't do enough and what consequences, just suspending a kid or kicking a kid out of class does not teach them new behaviors. Right. All it does is move the problem somewhere else. Much of the issues that our students are bringing, are presenting us with, is the result of something else, a result of some other trauma, a result of some other conflict that they have not had an opportunity to work through and to resolve. And so what I, I feel like I would have responded to the Dear Colleague letter as a district or as a school leader with is, okay, well, what are the structures can we put in place to stop these type of behaviors from occurring? Not how can we react to the behaviors, but how can we be preventative? And I think that's the conversation that needs to be taking place is how do we prevent these things to happen? Uh, Jamie, I don't expect you to speak for all white women. <laughs> but uh, how have you thought about this in your career? How, you know, I think, I think maybe the subtext of a lot of this conversation is, yeah, most teachers in America are white women. Um, and so they're the ones that are going to be responsible in, in, in a large part to um, evolving these structures and evolving how, how we think about this as educators. I, I agree with Bakari as far as we need to evolve what the consequences look like. They <clears throat> need to be different. In my district, I don't, ha- like I've mentioned, I don't deal with a lot of students of color, but I do deal with class re- issues as far as 
some students in my district are very well off and some are not. And so they very well are walking in with baggage. They very well are walking in without the um, role models at home that they need. In my district, they need to see positive adult role models. I really like that example of when you tell someone to get out, you're telling them you don't care. And that's you know, kind of why I've mentioned that I try to keep the resolution in my classroom. I want to solve it in my classroom. If you have those relationships and you're trying to be a positive role model for these students, hopefully you're training that behavior to try to make a change for them and bring them, you know, train their behavior as far as this is, you know, not how to best advocate for yourself. podcast today is sponsored by the Coffin Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kaufman.org or on Twitter at KaufmanFDN. Well, on to our next topic. Here is what... President Trump tweeted recently amid a storm of tweets about immigration. It's a lengthy one. Quote, DACA is dead because the Democrats didn't care or act. And now everyone wants to get onto the DACA bandwagon. No longer works. Must build wall and secure our borders with proper border legislation. End quote. Despite that, one could say DACA, that is deferred action for childhood arrivals, is in fact still very much alive and in some respects even thriving. New DACA applications and renewal applications continue to be processed under the Trump administration at similar rates as they were before Trump announced late last year that he would phase out the program. We should say that the program still legally is surviving because of a couple of court cases that have put the Trump administration's plans to end it on hold. And there's also a mounting body of research that strongly suggests many positive benefits for the education, careers, and lives of DACA recipients. We wanted to revisit this topic today. And actually, I want to start with Greg. We've said this before. You teach at a school that has a lot of first-generation students, a fair number of them, DACA recipients. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wonder, has the president's latest Twitter eruption about immigration, DACA in particular, had any impact on them, on your school, on you as their teacher? Um, No and yes. No for, for three reasons. First, because we know what to expect from from Trump. I mean, we're not surprised anymore what comes out, the vitriol that comes out of, of the man's Twitter feed. The other second thing is just I, in self-reflection, there's an amount of self-preservation going on for me because we have state testing coming up for this government class. So why would I want to talk about something that could discourage students in doing really well on a test that we have to do well on? Um, the third reason why... What I don't think many people realize is that DACA recipients, it's, it's, it's really good in that you know, they're no longer fearing being deported, but it's not this great thing where all of a sudden they have all the same opportunities as everybody else. Uh, for instance, a DACA recipient can fill out the FAFSA, but they cannot get any federal financial aid. They still can't get, like, say, a Pell Grant. So even if you have DACA, your chances of going on to secondary education – are really, really slim unless you're a really, really good student and can get private scholarships. On the other hand, yeah, this has a huge impact because on, on me personally, it just seems like the discussion is, has gone so far to the right that three or four years ago, it seemed like the DREAM Act was going to happen, the DREAM Act that would allow um, students, DACA students essentially, to become citizens, be, have a, a pathway to citizenship. That seemed like it was just a matter of time, like it was going to happen. 
now the discussion has gone so far completely to the right that that seems like an it, almost an impossibility. Yeah, interesting that you say that. Um, you know, when you're talking about the discouragement, I just wanted to highlight a a piece of new research that came out, a new working paper released by the National Bureau of Economic Research, um, actually argues that the DACA program has had a what the paper calls a significant impact on the educational and life decisions of undocumented immigrant youth, um, resulting in a 45% decrease in teen birth rates, a 15% increase in high school graduation rates, and a 20% increase in college enrollment rates. And, and the paper notes that the, the college enrollment spike is almost completely concentrated among female recipients of mm-hmm. DACA, that it's, a, it's an increase in female mm-hmm. college enrollment that's driving that overall increase. The, the college enrollment increase for, for male DACA recipients is, is not statistically significant. So there is, there is an impact um, mm-hmm. on getting DACA on the choices that these students are making. Why is that from your vantage? Because it felt like they were being included in the conversation. I remember when, when DACA was, was announced, uh, the next day I came into class and I said, you guys are in trouble now because you got no excuse. There is no excuse anymore for not participating in, in your own education because you are now part of the conversation. And so um, that, that's the great thing about it because then, yeah, they were. They, they felt like you know, they were plugged into the system. They felt like they were part of the community. Um, and now they aren't, and that's the discouraging thing. And personally, for me, it's it's heartbreaking. Uh, Jamie, this might not be a fair question, but I'll ask you, we, you know, we've talked before, you teach in a politically conservative community, I think it's fair to say, a, a, a politically conservative community, mm-hmm. um, the town that your school is in, your student and, and family population. I wonder how this immigration issue, as, as Bakari is defining it, how that is talked about among your students and, and within your school, if it is addressed at all, and, and how they see it. Uh, they were, would support Trump's decisions. As, a, as an educator and one that is more liberal, I have solidarity f- with the students that are going to be affected by this, even though I don't know any personally. And if they are DACA recipients in my district, they've probably kept it secret because of just how much of a minority that makes them even more so um, in our district. How do they, your students, how do they they talk about, if you've heard them talk about immigration or immigrants? They they are probably proponents for the wall and think everything's a great idea. And the recent call for um, troops at the border, you know, they, they applaud that. And I mean, it's just kind of, it's really, I have to bite my tongue a lot at school. And, yeah, so, and I, I would imagine it's an, it's an issue you probably don't have to address, right? Like, but I, I wonder how you feel. I mean, because you are clearly kind of politically opposed to that and you have, you have different <clears throat> opinions and you feel maybe compelled to say something. But I, I wonder how you... I do not feel comfortable saying anything. Yeah. I do not feel comfortable um, objecting. I, when I have factual evidence and I can oppose them, I do. And this is only because I've said something in the past and been um, punished for it. So I don't anymore. By? Administration. By your administration. Okay. Yes. Um, so. Do you mind if I ask what the, what the, uh, what the, what that conversation, or what the, the thing uh, was that you said? It or? was just um, a student made a joke when uh, a student leaning more towards my my political views made a joke and I didn't like stop him from saying it and a student t- took that home and the parents complained and um, so I was held accountable for that student not being punished for saying something against the current mm-hmm. president so 
Yeah, that's an, I mean, it's an interesting perspective. I know it kind of makes it's necessarily uncomfortable to talk about. But. Yeah, anytime there's something, like I said, that I can factually say, I do. But I, I don't, I try to not bring politics into my classroom because I do differ from their beliefs so very much. And I don't want to feel like I'm attacking them, but I also don't want to be put in a corner. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I wonder how, because, we, I mean, we, we have like such a, 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 a spectrum of experiences in the classroom at this table. I mean, you, know, you have someone who, who's working almost exclusively with the population of Latino students, many of them doctoral mm-hmm. students, and then you have one that you exclusively white students, uh, almost exclusively white students, and the experiences among those two student bodies are, are so, so and, I, and I don't know how that, yeah. uh, how that, how that bridge would ever be. I, be built. Yeah, I don't know either. And I struggle with that myself because I would like my students to have just even I mean, I've talked to other teachers about they need to instead of just this teacher observation thing, because we can go to other schools and observe other teachers like these students need to go and observe these other classrooms like they need to see not only how different they are, but just things that they take for granted. Yeah. Like you, you, you teach English or you have taught English or, you know, um, reading and do you feel comfortable like introducing like immigrant narratives or, or the experiences um, of of other people from other countries? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I would include and I would include those when I actually taught reading and and I and so that's and that's how I've gotten to introduce the idea. But they but then it's really hard. Like they can feel sympathy for a character, but then when you and then translate, tra- yeah, mm-hmm. it's hard to to translate that to real mm-hmm. human life. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the last topic that we have before kids these days. I had no idea about how in-depth the darkest parts of human history go. That's what a teenage vandal wrote after a court-ordered reading assignment. This happened in Virginia after five teens were convicted of vandalizing a historic black schoolhouse with racist graffiti. A judge ordered them not to go to jail or to go through community service. The judge instead ordered them to read several books from a list of titles covering themes of racism and hate. One boy read, among other things... 12 Years a Slave, To Kill a Mockingbird, and The Tortilla Curtain. And he wrote to the court about the impact the books had on him and his views, and some of what he wrote was published recently by the New York Times. He writes in part that before this, the swastika didn't really mean much to him. Quote, not anymore. I was wrong. It means a lot to people. It reminds them of the worst things, losing family members and friends, of the pain of torture, psychological and physical. Among that, it reminds them how hateful people can be and how the world can be cruel and unfair, end quote. Well, this story is an English teacher's dream, the idea that you can change people, change the world by reading. So I just wanted to ask, if you had a choice, what is one book you'd give a kid if you wanted to try to maybe change their behavior or worldview? I actually just read one lately. It's called The Hate You Give, and it's really new. It's came out. It's a in YA time. book, yeah, yeah, very popular YA book. There's this girl who grows up in what she considers the ghetto, but she goes to a good private school because her dad can afford to send her there and keep her out of trouble because where she, you know, where they live, it's very dangerous. And um, kind of revolves around the story of um, her good friend being shot by a police officer and the media spin that they put on, on her friend and how they protect the white police officer and put the media spin on, on her black friend. And I feel like... Any person who's not like any if I had a student that was not giving credit where credit was due, that's a very, you know, new, relevant book that I would have them read. I mean, there's a lot of 
older historical books that they could read too. But since that one's more new, it might help reach them a little bit. It's about, I mean, it's, it's about things that they see in the news. Yeah, it's and about it's, Black it's very, Lives Matter. Very and the relevant. Fact, yeah. To them. yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that, that book has gotten a lot of publicity and a lot of praise for you know depicting mm-hmm. the, the exact types of things that you're talking about. Bakari, Greg, what is a, a book that you would want to give a kid if you wanted to, to change their behavior or worldview? Man, I had a hard time with this just because uh, I, as a history person, I, I tend not to read YA novels that much, so I didn't know like what could connect. The, the first thing I thought of was was Huck Finn, but I'm afraid that a student just wouldn't get the satire. They just wouldn't get the critique of a of a the critique of a slave owning racist society. So the only other thing I could really think of is is maybe the and this is my government nerd coming out is the the speeches um, and writings of Abraham Lincoln. Um, going back, showing the importance of the Declaration of Independence, that without that ideal that all men are created equal, um, everything falls apart. Going back to that and as, as the core of what America is and holding on to that. Bakari. I kind of struggle with this question, too, because I haven't read a young adult novel in quite some time. Um, the most, The two most recent books that I read that helped, that I felt just really resonated with me and my journey as a black male, um, was Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man mm-hmm. um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. I think those two really do a good job of articulating the struggle and just the thought processes of black men in America, um, and I think that that would help shape any student's understanding of race and, ra- and how race plays out in America. Well, we have our own reading list now. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days After the Credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Greg, what are your kids into? Uh, It's coming up on prom, so figuring out... Always with the prom. Yeah, it's figuring out not just what to wear, but who to ask and how to ask. Yeah, this is a lot of that's 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 the pressure and 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 seeing the lengths that some kids will go to is is fairly amazing. You might have been able to hear Bakari's eye roll as, <laughs> as, as the administrator is probably dealing with some of the. Oh no! <laughs> luckily, I'm in middle school, so prom is not a big deal. We don't see the prom proposals. Well, yeah. well, Greg, what what are the what are the promposal trends this year? Um, so far, what I what 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 I've seen is just um, being as loud and and over the top as possible. Usually in the cafeteria or in the hallway between So what's like, what's something that classes. a kid has done? Um, like brought, um, somehow got in the school like 12 dozen roses, I think had it ordered, like shipped in um, and, and, and brought it in um, and tried to surprise 12 the, dozen? Oh, sorry, 12 8 yeah, oh, dozen, dozen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, 12 dozen, that would be awesome actually that, that would <laughs> impress me yeah. um, So there is, the, yeah um, just something like that and trying to surprise the um, you know, surprise their their date, um, you know, with with the question. Bakari, what are your middle school kids into? Well, I think someone's already said it before, so I have two. But Fortnite is, is Fortnite still, is still oh, there. Fortnite is still there. Oh my yes. lord, it is still. I there. think it's actually been said like three or four okay, times. Okay, yeah, yeah, it is. Wow, hot hot on the presses right now. Um, but also, there's a recent viral video challenge going on. Um, it's called the Oh Lord Cha- Oh Lord Challenge, and it sparked from. 
uh, a little white boy who's singing yodeling in Walmart, and, right, it, yeah. and it has been remixed um, with a hip hop beat behind it, and now people are doing the Ola challenge. Um, I've seen students doing the hallways. They've shown me videos of them doing it. Um, yeah, it's just them yodeling. That's no, the no, no, no. They dance to the remix. Okay. It's right. a dance mm-hmm. to the remix. Yeah. Um, back to the Fortnite thing, real fast. There was a an article about how uh, so many some districts are having to. Um, I don't know what the word for it is, but like expand their internet capabilities because so many kids are playing <laughs> Fortnite wow. at school. Add to the <laughs> bandwidth. Wow. It is, uh, it's slowing wow. down yeah. the, uh, <laughs> the internet connection for the entire school or the entire district. Uh, Jamie, what are your kids into? Uh, spring fever. They don't get to go outside for track. They don't get to go outside for after school lunch. They're just feverish with wanting to be outside. And they don't get to go outside because... It's cold. Yeah, it's, it's unseasonably cold here in the yeah, Kansas City yeah, area. We so should say that. It is snowing today, the day that we're taping this. Yeah, so. they're just, they're going crazy with not being able to be outside. And so how does that, what does that look like? Literally, it looks like people bouncing off the walls. Bouncing off the Lots lockers. Lots more discipline referrals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, having to make behavior more, uh, or manage more behavior. But um, they just, they need, we need it to be sunny. They need to go outside. We begin and end with discipline on this show. <laughs> well, thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Jamie Myers, and Bakari Ukuu. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, if you have spring fever, be nice to your teachers.